This is Houston Law Nerd Podcast with Dylan Russell, where we have nerd-level talks with judges, justices, and attorneys about civil trials and appeals, mostly in Houston, but throughout Texas. I'm your host, Dylan Russell, a law nerd, board-certified civil appellate attorney, and sometimes trial attorney. Let's get started. My first guest that I'm totally excited to have today is Judge Mike Englehart of the 151st District Court of Harris County, Texas. I think for most attorneys who practice in Harris County, it probably doesn't need an introduction, but I'm sure there's some folks who haven't had the opportunity yet to appear in his court. And so if you would just introduce yourself a little bit to all of the uh, listeners out there. Well, first, I'm I'm absolutely flattered and honored to be on your inaugural podcast, and congratulations to you, and I hope that you have a million episodes. I know you're going to do great. Uh, I'm Mike Englehart. I'm the judge of the 151st Civil District Court. Um, I'm a trial court judge on an appellate podcast, uh, but we, you know, everything we do is subject to appeal, and so we think about appeals all the time. I've been a judge for... 14 and a half years. I was elected back in 08. Um, and uh, so I've been on the bench since January 1st, 2009. And uh, I live in Bel Air with my wife, Eva. And I've got two boys that are I'm now 24 and 21. So we're practically empty nesters. And, uh, and, and that's me. Well, uh, so you've, you've, you've won your position, your seat. Now th- four times? Yep. I was elected in eight, and it's a four-year term, elected in eight and 12 and 16 and 20, um, countywide. Sometimes people get confused about the number. When I talk to voters, they say, where's the 151st district? Am I in your district? Uh, but that's not, it's not a geographical representation. Uh, state reps or congressmen or women, when they have a, a district... It's some sort of weird gerrymandered sliver of an area. It could cover multiple counties, uh, but when you hear term, when you hear the term district court, and you're talking about uh, a, a court like mine, it is the entire county. So I am uh, every voter in Harris County is my constituent. I represent every voter in Harris County. All right, and so you graduated from law school in 90, 1995. 1995, the University of Houston Law Center. Go Cougs. All right. I have a, I have a cousin and a cousin-in-law who are recent graduates of the U of H Law School. Uh, but that, so in, if that was 95, so that means you were in private practice from what, 95 to about 2008 or the end of 2008. That's right. I, was, uh, I started out, actually, I was working uh, with John O'Quinn in law school uh, started in 94 as a law clerk uh, with a woman named Pat Hill who was working for him and we did all sorts of interesting cases, a lot of federal um, cases and with multi-party cases. And I'm, we're sitting doing this podcast in a, in a conference room and I'm looking at all of the, uh, of the Southwest uh, reporter books and that was my life for years, sitting in there going through the books and shepherding cases and tracing legal doctrines back to their inception to common law or, or the like. And uh, so this is bringing back a lot of memories. I did a lot of that, 
Then I uh, hung up my own shingle, and uh, in toward the middle of 1996, and then I uh, had a woman named Kelly Greenwood join me in '97, and we were partners all the way through 2008. And what kind of practice? I mean, what was the kind of cases that you were, you were handling most during that period? We did a lot of personal injury, uh, car accidents, slip and fall, medical malpractice. We did uh, a, a good amount of DTPA litigation. I sued a lot of car dealerships about, over uh, uh, undisclosed problems with cars, bent frames, uh, things like that. And then we did a good amount of mass tort. We were in the first round of Fenfen cases, which was the diet drug uh, litigation in 97. We started that. We did uh, Seltzer hip replacement cases. Uh, we did Enron shareholder cases. Um, and the, are most of those in federal court? Or? Well, <laughs> we had the resources to, we used all our money to advertise for the cases, and then we referred them to bigger firms that were actually handling them, and then we got uh, referral fees mm-hmm. uh, for the most part on those. All right, and I noticed that uh, you were board certified in personal injury in 2010. Right. After I became a judge, uh, uh, it's interesting, the process to become board, cert- board certified when you are a judge, because the criteria for being able to sit for the test is a little bit different. But yeah, I had enough trials. I had enough oral arguments. I had enough uh, you know, cases of certain size. I forget exactly what the uh, application process was. And I sat for that test, and it was, uh, it was a very, very difficult test. I, but I studied for a, a, a solid two months, and, and they don't give you an outline. They don't give. There's no, uh, you know, Barbary for board certification. You just have to learn all of personal injury law, uh, including you know obscure things like uh, abuse of a corpse, uh, kinds of things. I mean, I knew everything. I was loaded for bear, and I went to Austin and I took that test. It was scary to go as a judge because people recognized me and they knew I was taking the test. And if I flunked, uh, they would know that I was not on the pass list. And I had uh, so that was it was a, it was a little bit scary. Yeah, I've I've heard I won't say any names, but I've heard certain justices in high courts in Texas, you know, have uh, had some issues with some of those board certification exams. Well, the, the, so I know, I know, and I know I have one judge in particular who was, who was reluctant to even take it for that very reason. The <laughs> passage rate for the appeal, the civil appeals one is, is, I don't know, it, it maybe 10%. Yeah. My year was 20, 30, like 30%. I think immigration law typically has the, the very lowest uh, passage rate, but uh, yeah, definitely not something I, I remember after taking the bar, I said, I'm never taking another exam again. And then, you know, there I was. But you know what's good? It's good that it is, it's difficult because being a board certified attorney in whatever your specialty is, or even having multiple certif- uh, um, board certifications, really distinguishes you. And uh, just the process of going through the studying and sitting for the exam gives you a lot of insight. A lot, and, and I think it makes you a better lawyer. And I, you know, people who go hire lawyers, one of the things that I see a lot is when, when pro se's wander into my court, uh, and I tell them, I explain to them, they need to get a lawyer, because I'm not trying to be mean, but if you're going up against a 
a lawyer that actually knows what they're doing, you're going to lose. Not, you might lose, you're probably, probably going to lose. You're going to lose. Not because I'm going to be unfair, but you just don't know the rules. You don't know the rules. And so more, so we give them pamphlets, we give them brochures, we give them, uh, you know, Lone Star Legal Aid, Houston Volunteer Lawyers. And, but I always admonish them to not just go hire a lawyer thinking that lawyers are fungible, right? That, that a, a lawyer is a lawyer is a lawyer. It's not true. You need, if you're, if you're, if you're in a case where they're potentially foreclosing on your home, you're not. Don't go hire a car accident lawyer, right? You don't go hire a criminal defense lawyer. Hire someone who knows what they're doing because it, they'll be more efficient, and they'll be, and obviously, but much more likely to be successful. Yeah. No, I've I've uh, I've had some cases over the years against pro se folks, and it definitely you know makes it difficult for everybody, frankly. Um, but, so I'm curious when you, after, I guess, practicing private practice for about 13 years, you know, uh, what was it that made you decide you wanted to run for judge? Uh, do you want the political answer or do you want the, <laughs> uh, both, you both. Want the, all the answers? Okay. Well, I have remember having a discussion with my law partner when we were early on in our practice after having been in some hearing thinking, you know, the idea of being a judge someday is very attractive. I think the uh, coming from O'Quinn's, John O'Quinn's firm, noodling in the law, getting into the nuts and bolts of the law, actually understanding these doctrines and where they come from and how they work, to me was fascinating. It, it, that was something I was passionate about. And so I thought that being a judge, that would be a good fit to do that kind of work. And I, you know, it seems prestigious. It, judges that I uh, interacted with in social circles or at fundraisers or galas or whatever always seemed to be revered and uh, everyone would call them judge or your honor and, and they would get introduced. So it seemed very glamorous. So that I, I'd always been interested in from that sense and, and the just doing the work. And then in a political sense, I was, so I moved to Texas in 1992. Uh, Ann Richards was the governor. And then there was this bait and switch because two years later, Ann Richards was not the governor <laughs> and there were no other Democrats in office anywhere to speak of. And I happened to be a Democrat. Um, and so there were only Republican judges in Harris County in as of, you know, by at the time I was running. And two years earlier, in 2006, the Dallas County courts flipped almost completely from Republican to Democrat. We visited with them. We learned about the, the techniques that they had employed. Uh, we put together a strong program here in Harris County, and I threw my hat in the ring. And by the time I, I tried to act, you know how they say fake it till you make it? You know, I had never run for anything before, but I knew how to be loud, and I knew how to be um, uh, assertive, and I kind of portrayed myself as the 800-pound gorilla. Um, you don't want any part of me. And by the time the Democratic primary rolled around, the guy who was running against me in the Democratic primary, primary switched to another race. Hmm. So I ended up having no opponent in the primary. And then I ran against a three-term incumbent, um, very well-known, who was reappointed shortly after and well-liked. 
Um, and uh, out of 1.1 million votes, I think I won by 17,000 votes. Wow. Wow. W- was any part of uh, uh, that decision to, to, besides what you've said, to, be, you know, to decide to run uh, to be a judge, was there a, at least a part of it that had something to do with your experience in the courtroom in private practice and kind of thinking, you know, maybe I would do things differently uh, than some of the judges that you might have, you know, been in front of? Was that ever something that, 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 that you thought, well, you know, if I run, I'm going to do it this way or, you know, um, is that play any kind of part? Absolutely. I, I practiced in Harris County, Fort Bend, Brazoria, um, all around. I was in Dallas, San Antonio, Travis County. Um, and uh, one thing that I saw that, that always bothered me was, uh, I mean, there's a number of things, but court uh, judges seemed to set hearings when they had their oral hearing days for nine o'clock in the morning or eight, 8.30 in the morning, all of their cases. And you would sit there in, until your case was called. And that might be three or four o'clock in the afternoon. And you're behind some discovery dispute that is endless. In case in courts where it's general jurisdiction, you're stuck behind criminal cases all the time. And I mean, no disrespect, criminal cases need to, need to take priority and be heard and get, and people need to have their day in court in those cases. Um, but one thing that I knew that I would do was stagger stagger hearings uh, from day one. That mean, meaning uh, I would set your hearing on my docket day, not at nine o'clock, and then you just sit there. But you, I'd set nine, nine, nine fifteen, nine thirty, ten o'clock. Then if, as we got you know bigger cases, summary judgments or other longer things that were going to take longer in the afternoon, we would set aside more time. But if you had a summary judgment that was going to take an hour, you didn't need to show up at 9 o'clock, we would tell you, you you're going to show up at 2.30, and you're going to have your hour at about 2.30. And have you have you adjusted that in all the years that you've been on the bench, or is that essentially what you, I mean, what you started doing, you're still doing today? We're still doing that. Day one, and I've had most of my staff from the beginning, they've stayed with me. I've been very fortunate, and I have a great staff. Um the uh, some folks have taken advantage of retirement, and God bless them. And <laughs> retirement with a pension is a beautiful thing. Um, but uh, I day one, I walked in and I said, um, uh, "What what was missing when when I was practicing in front of these judges and talking to clerks and talking to coordinators was I want to treat lawyers like customers, like this is a business." Not that they're pests and we're fending them off, but rather we are there to facilitate moving their case from beginning to end. If we can accommodate them, if we can help them in that process and speed that process along, we're going to do that. We're going to be responsive and we're not going to stand on ceremony or this is the way it's always been done. We're going to be flexible and uh, we're going to, you know, the, you know the adage and it the customer is always right. Well, uh, I went about halfway. The lawyers are often right, um, and uh, we try to make their lives easier, not harder, because I know from my practice that practicing law is stressful, it's hard, it's scary, it's expensive, it's risky. Uh, you never know when you're going to get sued for malpractice or you're going to uh, and blow a deadline or, or a statute. Um, 
And so if I can, in a fair way, without you know playing favorites, obviously, um, let you up off the mat uh, and, and give you your day in court, uh, rather than put you in a malpractice situation, I'm going to try to do that. Um, and so today you're, I mean, you're practice, uh, not your practice, but, uh, ha- are you still having hearings only on one day a week or so you can have trials or are you spread out, you know, depending upon, you know, what your schedule, your court docket schedule looks like? Uh, Mondays are, are our docket days all day. So I always tell jurors and lawyers when we're in trial, we're never in trial on Monday, period. The end. No qualifications. Th- that's it. Um, Sometimes we'll have temporary injunction hearings on Fridays. They tend to go away. I might have one a month, um, uh, but we'll do it at, a, at 1 o'clock and see if we can wrap it up by 2 or 2.30 so we can still get some most of the day for trial. I'd like to be in trial Tuesday through Friday. Hmm. So do you so – you, and I guess that probably helps some of the other courts. I assume most courts probably start jury trials on Mondays, at least in Harris County. That has been my – my, you know, the practice that I've seen most often when I've, you know, either, you know, was going to try a case or seen other, you know, other, you know, colleagues try a case, usually Mondays, at least in Harris County. Does that help with, you know, having, you know, maybe a different jury pool or getting more jurors to come in? I think that there's a lot of, there's 24 civil district courts. And in my experience, a good chunk of them have their Monday, have Monday dockets and a good chunk of them have Friday dockets. And I think that was set up in a way, it might have happened organically, but I think it's been that way for a long time. My predecessor had her oral hearing days on Monday, so I didn't see any reason to switch that. If we all went to one day, I think there would be a drag on on juries. So I do think splitting it up that way is is helpful. And of course, we're always behind the criminal panels um, and grand juries and things like that. So, but, but I've been able to get juries lately without much issue and and you know as big as as you have, if it's going to be more than 50 you have to i think you have to give them 30 days notice so they know to pull a bigger pull a jury pool for that day um but we can we can get 46 pretty regularly if it's going to be a case that's going to last a week or so because i want to make sure that we have an alternate or two these days between covid and just you know lots of whatever's coming up so the, i guess that means you know, unless it's a really big case, and I, I you know, I read your your court procedures, you, you're pretty flexible with how much time you know attorneys take in voir dire. Voir dire is the most important part of the case. I heard that from in from a, an an old old lawyer, I can't remember who, but early early on, they say they it might have even been a law professor in one of my practical you know uh, advocacy classes in law school. They, the professor asked, or the, you know, what's the most important part of the trial? Oh, closing argument, um, evidence, opening statement, um, uh, whatever. Uh, he said, no, it's voir dire. It is getting the best jury you can get for your case. Voir dire is a vastly underutilized tool. Attorneys, I love you all. I do. But you you can do better in Vordire. It is hard, but it is essential that you learn how to do it properly. And if you have the resources to use a consultant, you should do that. 
If you can mock your Vordire, you should do that. Do you place, uh, do you, I mean, you got, I, I assume when, you know, we, when you have a real small case versus a real big case, you know, small case might, you know, take a day, day and a half, a big case, you know, could go on for weeks. At least that's what the, the, you know, attorneys might be telling you or your, or months or months. <laughs> <laughs> I've heard of those, never done one. Uh, but, but I mean, would you, ad- would you tell attorneys or suggest that, wow, you guys are spending way too much time on this for Dyer for such a small case, or you do, or do you kind of let the attorneys really decide how much time they they actually need, regardless of how you know one the judge or whoever might perceive the case to be in in importance or complexity or you know the size of the amount in dispute, assuming it's a money case. I ask the attorneys uniformly how much time they want for Vordire. I don't say you will have X amount of time for Vordire. I ask every time, how much time do you want? Some lawyers will say, I don't need more than 30 minutes, judge. And that's, and I've lucked out in that way the great majority of the time. Uh, and luck- when I say luck out, I mean... That's that. That's great because we can move the thing along. For it's good for efficiency. I don't. I'm disappointed sometimes that the attorneys don't understand the value of Vordire, and or haven't read my bio in to know that I'm. If you tell me what you want, and because I think Vordire is crucial, and you need to get you need to know who's on the panel. People don't use shuffles. People don't use, they don't know how to pin down a juror for cause. They don't know, uh, they don't know what they're actually looking for. They don't know, they want, if someone says, I, just because someone says, I don't think I could follow the court's instructions on uh, the burden of proof, or I couldn't award, I don't think I could award um, mental anguish or pain and suffering or exemplary damages for that matter. Um, that doesn't mean they're necessarily a bad juror for you because that could just be off the cuff. If you need to learn more about them and their background. Um, and there's lots of tools for doing that and learning about them. Uh, one, one thing that I see that's effective is, is uh, lawyers will use a PowerPoint and they'll, just, they'll have a scale. And you know, tell me uh, on on a scale of one to ten or one to five, where do you fall? And they'll go through the whole panel. You know, I could, if my loved one was catastrophically injured in a in a horrible accident, um, and it was my decision whether to file the lawsuit or not. Where do you, you know, would you file the suit? Would you not file the suit? If people are telling you, no way in hell, I would never file a lawsuit. I'm 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 constitutionally opposed to lawsuits. That's one thing. Um, but that same person who might think, who might say, I could never award. Uh, that kind of damage. I've many times I've seen them in tears at the and when in, in a good voir dire when the attorney finally gets around to talking about the facts because you know under under the case law under um, uh, now I'm going to forget the names of the the cases but the um, if you want to challenge some if you want to be able to preserve a challenge for cause that you need to not get into the facts of the case. You need to talk about. You just need to talk about sort of general concepts uh, about being able to consider things, being able to award certain kinds of things. But once you start going into the facts of the case, it makes it much more difficult to 
to strike someone for cause. If you, the example that I always use, which is a dumb example, but it's very simple. If I told you that my client ran the red light in this car wreck, would you hold that against my client and not be able to find in their favor? Of course. Was that the basis for the challenge for cause? No. That's just your tough luck. That's a bad fact. Um, and so uh, Hyundai and Cortez are the cases that I'm trying to think of. And so uh, I, 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 I teach Vordire. I've given CLE presentations on Vordire. I've written papers about Vordire. It is essential, and, uh, and I, I'm always fascinated by uh, how, it, how it goes. And I'll, 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 I'll finish the topic with this because I don't want to filibuster here, but um, I'm always fascinated by how panels from one day to the next are completely different. I could bust a panel on, this, on a case, meaning run out, not have enough jurors, uh, because they're, not, they're all challenged for cause, because they're, I don't know, terrible human beings who ha- can't, can't conceive of suffer, human suffering, or whatever it is. Um, and, uh, and, you know, just awful. I could never do this. I could never do that. I couldn't follow the judge's instructions, no matter what it is. And I'd be like, man, we're never going to get a jury on this case. Bust the panel, come back tomorrow, new panel, new faces. Happy, happy, happy as clams. I could award this. I could consider that. Absolutely. I could do this. I could do that. Same facts, same Vordire, totally different panel. Is that why, one reason why you suggest, I mean, if an attorney wants it to, uh, you know, ask for a shuffle? Yes, you know, and as you know, only there's only one shuffle per case, not not one per side, but just one shuffle, and uh, it is vast, also vastly underutilized because you have because the effect of it could be, um, you know, if you've got that that same white middle aged engineer that followed me around from personal injury uh, jury to personal injury ver- uh, veneer. Uh, around the state of Texas, it seems that has could never consider awarding uh, damages for this, that, or the other, in the in the in the front, and you've got a lot of much more, you know, young Gen Z, uh, bright-eyed um, liberal softies in the back, and you uh, and you don't ask for a shuffle. I think you're uh, you're not uh, serving your client's needs, and I, that's from the plaintiff side, and I, and I that's where that's where I was practicing before I became a judge. But you know, likewise, you do the the opposite is also true on the defense side. I mean, I uh, in my experience with either doing voir dire myself or watching someone else to do it. I mean, the thing that I see most often is is attorneys not spending enough time on each individual juror. Uh, particularly those who are likely to be the ones that don't get struck for cause. You know, if both sides have six strikes, you know, you obviously need to focus on you know, the first 24 and probably then some because you're going to have some some cause. Uh, um, so it seems like, you know, usually it's the quiet juror, you know, that, that ends up getting on the panel. And, of course, you never, you know, with that, if you haven't, you know, force that the quiet juror to uh, or veneer uh, member to talk, then you, you're going to have no clue until the end of the case whether, you know, that was the juror that you did or didn't want. Part of my introduction in every trial before when the when the veneer gets there, before the attorneys start their voir dire is I'm going to let you in on a little secret. 
I, I tell them about the concept of peremptory strikes. That they can be because at the end of the trial, the jury in a, one of my sorry, I'm, I'm let me try to go more chronologically. At the end of the trial, one of my favorite things about being a judge is that the jurors want to talk to me. They want to know what I think about what they did. I call it sort of a soft Stockholm syndrome. They've been held captive for a few days, and they've fallen in love with me, not because I'm so great, just because I'm the guy up on the bench. And they want to know, did they do the right thing? Um, that's question one. And my answer is always milk toast. There was a wide range of things that could have happened in this case, and your verdict was well within that range. Um, the, uh, but the other question is, why did they pick me? They always say, why did they pick me? And so I've started saying for years now, at the end of this trial, you're going to want to know, you're going to ask me in the jury room, if you're on the jury, why did they pick me? And I'm going to tell you the answer right now so we can get it out of the way. They didn't. They didn't pick you. They're not recruiting jurors. They're trying to learn something about you so that they can wisely use one of their precious peremptory strikes on you. I don't talk about challenges for cause because that's too complicated and opens a can of worms. But I, they, if they don't know anything about you, they're not going to use one of their peremptory strikes on you. And so I'll let you in on a little secret from your, your Uncle Mike up here on the, on the bench. If you sit there quietly and don't say anything, you will be on the jury. Um, and, they, and then it's always true. It's the people that, whose names I call are the people who we bar they barely said a word, if anything, in Vordire, and, they, and we're reading their names for the first time, and they're the ones that, that march up uh, out of their seats uh, into the jury box. And it's a, bunch, it's a bunch of people that we know nothing about. And so... And, and I assume that, that that means, you know, you can tell the, the, the attorneys, the lawyers who are very experienced and clearly have tried a lot of jury trials because they do spend a lot of time, you know, making sure they've talked to each, each juror and really fleshed out, you know, what, you know, whether they have some bias or prejudice or whether there's a, a cause issue that you, they might be able to bring up with you later. It, it, yes. The, the best ones are very systematic. They have a plan. They know who they want to talk to. They know what the information they want to get and they will, um, you know, they've, they've covered these things with everyone, and they have, they've designed their questions in a way to loop in other people. They get an opinion from somebody, and then they will go to the, just about everybody. Do you agree with that? What do you think about that? What do you think about that? And get them talking, even if it's not specific to the case, or they just get them talking. You know, what are you passionate about? What do you like to do in your spare time? What podcasts do you listen to? Um, what, where do you get your news? But they always get information so they can learn something about those people. I'm going to change subjects a little bit, and this is obviously something that, you know, uh, I still do a little trial work, but mostly appeals. And, and the one thing that's, of course, I know you know, unique to uh, state district courts, at least in Texas, uh, compared to certainly appellate judges, whether state or federal, and federal district court judges is state Texas State District Court judges don't have to write opinions. Uh, but I'm curious, you know, 
whether that's something that you do at all, even in a, you know, a limited context, like, I mean, I've seen some judges draft their own orders on things, uh, certainly, um, you know, take a proposed order and add to, or, you know, delete things. Is that something that you, you do at all? And then if so, you know, what, I guess there's the limitations of time and the number of cases you have is probably the biggest factor, but wh why would you not write opinions, you know, uh, is there some reason to do that other than just the time constraint? Yeah, there is, there's a legal reason not to do it. I used to do it more when I first took the bench because I, I, I enjoyed, I did that. I did a lot of that as a, I did a lot of appellate work as a, as a litigator as well. Uh, I was hired to do appeals or <laughs> by necessity I had to handle my own appeals. Um, and, uh, and, and I enjoyed that kind of work and I liked doing the writing and the research. And in the beginning I did that and I, there's some that really st I still am very proud of. There was one that had to do with uh, a no damages for delay clause in one of my first trials. It was a three to four month trial and it really came down to a contractual provision about um, it was a sovereign immunity matter, and it was whether and and, and affirmative defenses to uh, a no damages for delay clause. There was uh, Port of Houston Authority had a uh, a case that uh, was involved with Zachary Construction, and they were building a, a big wharf out in the ship channel, and there, there was a contract that's you know three inches thick. And but it really came down to where the money was was in this no damages for delay clause. The plaintiff Zachary wanted delay damages. Um, the defendant, the Port of Houston, was saying, aside from sovereign immunity issues, they were saying we are entitled to assert the the following uh, affirmative defenses to a no damages for delay clause, and um, or or they would have to overcome. They would have to prove that some that we were not capricious or arbitrary or committed fraud or, or whatnot. In other words, those, it, the port was essentially saying we could do all of these things. We could be, act arbitrarily, capriciously. We could commit fraud as the owner, and those would be, and you wouldn't be able to, if we could prove that, or if you couldn't prove that we didn't do that, then you wouldn't be entitled to no damages, to your delay damages. It was, this was 13 Twelve or thirteen years ago, I'm I'm not stating it as clearly as I did, it, but I wrote a lengthy opinion about that and basically said there is no way the Texas law can be that an owner can commit fraud or act capriciously and get away with not having to pay delay damages because they were acted capriciously or fraudulently. And I said that just can't be the law. It cannot be that owners can just do whatever they want even to the to the extent even to up to fraud and not have to pay delay damages um and it went all the way up to the texas supreme court and i w i watched the oral argument and nathan hecht was uh, of course on the panel and he folded his arms in the in the oral argument and he leaned back in his chair a little bit and he said to i forget who was arguing it was some of the you know the real big um uh, appellate lawyers in the state that that we most appellate practitioners would know, um, award-winning lawyers, and Nathan Heck leaned back and said, "There's no way that cannot be the law," <laughs> <laughs> and I was affirmed. 
Uh, and it was a big verdict, and it was a big judgment, and I was super proud of that. And then I wrote another one having to do with um, uh, a you know, lengthy opinion on uh, the, the eight corners doctrine, uh, insurance policies and, and contracts. And uh, I was affirmed on a, a very narrow exception to the eight corners doctrine that I wrote you know, eight or ten pages on. And another one on um, whether you needed an expert to prove uh, uh, causation in a disgorgement breach of fiduciary duty matter. Um, in, in, in those instances, is that something that you just decided you were going to do, or did the attorneys ask about it, or how did that? Those were things that I thought where the uh, the law was fairly bare. Uh, and and there was not much there, and I thought that the the argument, one of the arguments, was much more persuasive, and I thought it needed to be, uh, I needed to write about it because I needed to give the court of appeals something to chew on and to think about. But I will also tell you that appellate court justices, from the from the beginning, have admonished me and my brothers and sisters on the district courts, don't do that. Don't do that. Just say grant or deny, because if you say all, if you write all this stuff, that makes it much our job much harder because it gives it, there's a lot more for the other side those folks to argue about, and it and it narrows the issues that we are that we are able to rule on. We if we disagree with your lengthy dissertation on this, that's the end of the appeal. If you say grant or deny, then it's it's wide open, and we could we could affirm uh, or or even remand on just about anything. Yeah, yeah. Well, from I guess it depends on what side, right? I mean, I know if you're the movement, you would like that order. If you have ten grounds in a summary judgment, and you're the movement, you don't want a, a specific order. Uh, but uh, I, I I had a summary judgment, you know, where the judge. Had, there were several grounds, you know, to dispose of claims, and the judge had decided, you know, this is the particular ground. And, you know, initially the judge signed the order that the other side had wanted, and I, you know, I went back and said, you know, judge, you remember when you said the reason you were granting it was because of X? Um, you know, I, w- I would I would really prefer it if you wrote an order, or at least wrote something in the order that clarified that that was the specific grounds, and I know... Uh, I mean, I'm, I'm, cu- I, I, I'm, I guess I understand a little bit why the a court of appeals justice would be would prefer to have all those options there. But I know, depending upon on what side of an appeal you might be on, you you prefer the the specification of the issue, particularly when you have one of these you know throw everything at the wall summary judgments, and then you have no idea which, if any of those grounds, was the ground. So is that something, if, if you know, if, if a lawyer for one side is saying, well, Judge, you know, you really sounded like you were deciding this particular issue, and that's why you granted it, would you would you specify that in an order? Yes, and and I actually, that's a little bit different than pontificating at length about the, the, the subject matter. I will very often say I'm granting the summary judgment on A and B and denying it on denying on C, D, and E. Um, and another underutilized tool, and I say this with trepidation because it gives me a lot of extra work, uh, is attorneys don't uh, object to summary judgment evidence enough. 
you can make my job, your job, and my job a lot easier if you can knock out the other side's summary judgment evidence, and there's no evidence for them to point to to say this raises a genuine issue of material fact, game over, right? So uh, a, a lot of attorneys let, slot, let things that might not otherwise be admissible or conclusory affidavits or documents that are uh, not authenticated, best evidence, hearsay, they let it slide, and it's in the summary judgment record without objection uh, where it could easily have been knocked out. I had this issue once, and I'm sure uh, he won't mind, but uh, Judge Hind and I had a, a discussion years ago, many years ago when, we're, when he was on the bench uh, uh, full-time, and it was about whether I could have a record of the summary judgment hearing. And, you know, he was reluctant, and I convinced him, and I think now there's a Texas Supreme Court case that says you can actually preserve error, uh, it, you know, without an order if there's something on the record. So I'm curious. I know I've, I've noticed that some judges in Harris County will have a record going whether you've asked for one or not. And I'm not sure exactly if it's because it was a summary judgment hearing or what the reason was. And some judges, if you don't ask for for a hearing, you're not going to get one. Um, I'm curious if you have a particular practice about summary judgments, hearings in particular, and then, you know, uh, whether, you know, making rulings, at least on the record, and then maybe, you know, follow, to belt and suspenders follow up with a written order, obviously would be the smartest thing to do for appeal purposes. But I, even, I, the way I do it is I say, I know that this is a summary judgment signaling. I know you usually don't have a record in the summary judgment. Does anybody want a record? Sometimes they'll say, most of the times they'll say, no, it's a summary judgment. Sometimes some, some why, clever lawyer will say, yes, I'd like a record. Because you never know what stupid thing the judge is going to say that is going to make a difference in the appeal. Um, and that's fine. I, I'm, never, I'm not going to begrudge you. I, I make mistakes all the time, and I'm not going to begrudge you your record or your right to go down the street and appeal what I did. In fact, I would be disappointed if you didn't, because that's your job, is to advocate for your client. Um, but uh, when it comes to objections in summary judgment evidence, for example, uh, I typically don't take the time uh, to do it during the oral hearing unless someone insists, and I usually say, uh, okay, I'll, I'll let them make their arguments. I have a good idea what I want to do, but I'll say I'm going to take it under advisement, So, and I'm going to, I will rule on the objections first, and then see where that leaves us in terms of the summary judgment, uh, and, and then I do that. And, and but I do it quickly. I I, I know that I know a lament of lawyers is judges take things under advisement and they're they fall down the rabbit hole and never heard from again. I really make it one of the things that I'm most proud of is I have about just about the lowest inventory of cases in the in the courthouse. Uh, and one of my favorite things about being a judge is, as opposed to a litigator, is Sometimes you can be done. You can have ruled on everything and go home because you're done. And you, you, there might be new stuff tomorrow, but you've ruled on everything. And you can go home, and, and I sleep very well uh, because I'm not worried about deadlines or I'm not worried about malpractice. I've, I have not lost a case in over 14 years. <laughs> well, you, you got to a question that I was going to ask you, it wasn't specific to summary judgment motions by any means, but uh, just, I know there was a, a, a former, you know, retired judge that, that had a good practice. Her practice was, you know, if she doesn't rule on the bench, 
which sometimes you can't, you know, you got to read cases and look at the record or whatever the issue is, uh, that she'll rule within 30 days. And if she hasn't ruled within 30 days, call the clerk and say, what's going on? Um, and do you have, it sounds like you have some kind of procedure in place to, to do something like that, but how formalistic is that? Or do you have, and, and the follow-up would be, what, what do you do? What do you suggest an attorney do who has a motion that's pending a while to make sure that, you know, it gets to your attention that, that it maybe hadn't been ruled on yet? I will never, ever, ever hold it against you if something fell through the cracks or I am, I am delinquent on ruling on something and you call the court and ask about it. And, and my clerk knows to forward that to me. So emails, voicemails? Yeah. It, it, Attorney Smith called because they were wondering if you've ruled on this motion. And it, she, does, she always will forward that to me because... Either I'm still chewing on it and I haven't figured it out yet, sometimes, or sometimes things fall through the cracks. We had a, a recent change in the district clerk's office in that they're not, I, I could, if I took something under advisement on my docket, on my computer screen, I could check the box that says under advisement, and then I could look back at each Monday docket and see what, if anything, is left pending for me to rule on from the oral hearing docket. They will not let the clerks do that anymore, and so now they go away. And so now I have to make a written list of, of things to remember what's under advisement. And my clerk will give me a report every couple of weeks. If it, and, and happily, it's a very short list because, I, as I said, I try to rule very quickly. But I would never begrudge you any time calling and asking about a ruling on something. It doesn't have to be – I'm not going to make you wait 30 days. That I, don't, I think that's – with all due respect, silly. Um, I, I've been dealing with the IRS on a, on a refund issue, and they and I call and I call and I call, and they say uh, you are now allowed to call back in 45 days. You may not call back before 45 days, and I'm like, and I want to tell them that means you're not going to do anything for 45 days. I would call, write, email. You're the advocate. Get it done. If I'm not doing my job, you need to call me out, period. Well, related to that, related to that, uh, you know, motions in general, you know, something that that is, I believe, well, I know it's required in the Texas Supreme Court and I think the courts of appeals, too. And I was always curious whether it made any difference uh, in trial court, you know, filings, briefing, you know, motions and such is, you know, things like. Uh, well, PDF bookmarks, and that's something that, that I started doing mostly in appeals. And obviously, you know, if it's a short one-page motion or a couple pages, it's probably not necessary. But if it's, a, you know, a, a complex multi-section motion for summary judgment with a bunch of different issues, you know, will, will you see bookmarks so that you, if you're looking at a PDF of a motion, you can jump around and, you know, is that something you'll see on your end? Or? Are you talking about a PDF link to exhibits or just no, or chapters within no, the so, within the, the the treatise that you have given me? <laughs> right. So if it's a you know, I mean, I'm sure you don't see as many 50 page motions as you see briefs in the courts of appeals. But you know, if I have three or four sections of you know different arguments in a motion, I will bookmark it so that when you're looking, when you click on the PDF. You know, depend. I guess it might depend on what your software is, but whatever. I mean, assuming it's Adobe, you should be able to see. So you can literally click 
you know, section two of the motion, it'll jump you down to, you know, argument about statute of limitations or whatever the issue is. And, and I didn't know if that was something that uh, if you file a brief in the Texas Supreme Court and you haven't done that, they will reject it until you need to go bookmark it. That way, you know, most of the judges are reading, at least initially, and certainly the, you know, the staff attorneys are reading those briefs in PDF. And so they want to be able to jump around and, and hitting those bookmarks, you know, immediately puts the page. So I'm just curious if that's something you've even, if, would it even matter? Am I wasting my time if I do that in, in you know, your court, for example? I think uh, I've not seen it more uh, in, in any significant amount. The motions are, even if it's 50, 75 pages, I'm just going to read it through. Uh, I'm not, I, I'm not typically going to go section by section if I, if I need to go back and look at what the actual argument was or what the citations to the evidence to support the particular argument was, I have no problem scrolling through till I find it. Are you looking at those things? I mean, the motions, are you almost always looking at them electronically or? Oh, yeah, only like? electronically. Okay. Some, there are still some holdovers that like to print things out and have their clerks or coordinators give them printouts of things. Um, but a, a very few. I I don't want. Uh, I, one of the things I said when I started. One of the things I ran on in 2007, 2008 was, no more paper. I want to be paperless as much as possible. I don't want paper. I don't want paper versions of things. I if, in, to the point of when you're mandamusing me, don't give me the written. Don't give me the paper. Give me a PD, Give me a a, um, a flash drive. So related to that question, not to interrupt, but no, okay. uh, uh, if if uh, you know, there's a couple of cases that are on point. Does it, it sounds like you don't want us to bring you hard copies. Would it be emailing, you know, to the clerk copies of cases? What about that? I'm not, I'm not a zealot. I'm not crazy. If you've got a couple of cases that are highlighted, and of course you brought one for the other side, um, and you want me to read that during the hearing or after the hearing, and you want to hand me a couple of cases that are printed out, that's fine. I'm not going to complain. I'm not going to whine about it. I'm just saying I don't need a note a three ring a three a six inch binder of all of your authorities i have westlaw if you've got if i need to go look at a case that is unique or new that i haven't read 30 times already in, in everybody else's brief um uh there's there's very you know i i stay up i read the supreme court uh when they issue new orders i read those summaries um and uh and I, I have, I'm a member of the College of the State Bar of Texas, as I'm sure you are. Uh, it is, there, and I'm board certified, so the, I have way heightened requirements for CLE. So I'm either teaching or sitting in a CLE many times a year, and I'm up to date. And, and there's so, you know, TCPA stuff, I'm up to date. All of the things having to do with uh, medical expenses, 410105, um, uh, paid or incurred issues, uh, the things that are the bread and butter, I know really, really well. You don't need to cite Nixon versus Mr. Property Management to me for the summary judgment standard. Um, but if it's, you know, if it's novel or, you know, maybe it's a, a out-of-state case and there's nothing on point in Texas and it's persuasive, um, then by all means, I'm, I'm happy to look at it. And I, I prefer that you highlight it and let me know the pinpoint that I should look at. Um, but, but yeah, I'm not, I'm not 
crazy. I'm not insane about it. I, I just prefer to, to minimize the amount of paper. Yeah, you're mentioning the pinpoint was something, you know, when I'm teaching, you know, young lawyers or law clerks, you know, how I how I write. And I always like to think back, uh, you know, when Tiger Woods came out and, you know, everybody was like, oh, my God, this is guy's the best golfer ever. You know, he wrote a book that I bought because I thought I was going to be a good golfer and that never happened. But it was the title of his book mirrored Jack Nicholas's book, which is how I play golf. And so when I'm teaching young lawyers, uh, you know, or, or law clerks, you know, how to write, I always say, this is how I do it. There's a million ways to do it, probably more ways to do it wrong, uh, but there's definitely more than one way to do it right. Uh, but the one thing that I do that I think is important, and, and I've, I've heard other people say it, so I know at least some people agree with me, but not everybody, and that is when you're citing case law in, you know, a motion or a brief or whatever it is, I, I I always when when it if it's a proposition of law a statement of you know this is the law I put it in quotes direct quotes from from the case or the statute um, and try to give a good citation and certainly pinpoint sites uh, because what I see happen a lot is you know if there's a a statement of law purported law and is it is not in quotes then I feel like well. Let's see if the case actually supports that. Is that something that, that you find happens a lot where, or at least sometimes where, you know, w- when something's not in quotes, you're not sure whether that's actually actually what the case said? Is that ever something that, that happens? And thus you would suggest, you know, maybe doing something like that? It's a, it's a broader question, and I, have a, and I have a story to go with it. Okay. Um, first of all, I... This is the age-old question that judges are asked in surveys and in studies. Would you prefer footnotes, <laughs> or do you want the, the citation in the body of the, right. of, the, of the brief? My answer is always, I want it in the body of the brief, because it's just going back down and finding the footnote and then going figuring out where you were is a pain in the neck. I'm yeah. in agreement on that. And I, so, I will use a footnote for some things, but... I put I put them in there because I want to I want particularly if I'm quoting some proposition of law I want the judge to know this is actually the law and it, and if it's you know and I assume it's important to to either put the Texas Supreme Court or one of the Houston Courts of Appeals if you can find authority on it that's obviously going to be I would think important but the body versus the footnote but right. sometimes footnotes are important to for certain things or to stand out or you know but I'd rather see more of it in the body than in the Footnote. But to answer your question, if you're if it is a proposition of law, you should quote it, and you should give me the page within the opinion. And I pref- I happen to prefer Westlaw. Some people use Lexis. If you give me a Lexis site, I got to go figure out where it is on Westlaw. But that's that's just the luck of the draw. Some judges use Lexis and some use oh, Westlaw. Really, I didn't know that. I I, I remember. Uh, when I was an intern in law school at the Court of Appeals, I think all they had was Westlaw, and then and that's all I learned when I was, you know, legal research and writing in law school. And then when I came to, you know, Hoover Slovacek, we've had Lexis for the last twenty years, and so I know that's. I think Justice Busby mentioned that, you know, maybe when he was still on the Court of Appeals. Um, but you, the, y'all can find, the, you know, the pinpoint site for Lexis or, or Westlaw. I wasn't aware of that. No, I can. And what I'm saying is I, I have to go find the case on Westlaw. I have to go f- basically search for the name of the case in Westlaw if you've given me the Lexis site. But some judges can actually use Lexis. Some, right. You, when you, 
day one of new judge school, when you show up at the courthouse, uh, the administrator asks you, one of the things they ask you is, uh, do you want to use Westlaw or Lexis? Um, and when I got there, I, I had owned, I'd used Westlaw through my practice. I used Westlaw in law school. I said, so give me Westlaw. And, and that's what I'm comfortable with. So, but I'll find the case if I need to go find it. But, but do tell me, the, whether it's in Lexis or Westlaw, please give me the pinpoint, because especially if it's a 50-page opinion. Now, you and I are experienced attorneys, and when, we, when you read a citation from a case, if you read a, a quote for, or, or a blurb or a parenthetical about a case, uh, especially Texas law, um, I, at least for me, and, and I bet you have the same spider sense, that stop, when it's wrong, you know it. You can feel it. That just doesn't, that, I don't think that's right. I don't think that's the law. And so, you know, the, the, there's a law, there's a common law rule about fiduciary duties, that attorneys owe fiduciary duties, um, and um, partners owe, owe fiduciary duties. Well, this lawyer tried to slip by a case, which I was familiar with the case, um, and I'm familiar with the concept that said uh, accountants also have fiduciary duties. And I said, that's not, I don't think that's right. And I went and looked at the case and it said, sure enough, it said attorneys, partners, said nothing about accountants having fiduciary duties. So I wrote an order making, basically making them come show cause why he mis misrepresented with the holding of that case. And so the point is, not that I'm brilliant, but that I've done this long enough to know when something doesn't just doesn't sound right. So the answer so that's a long way of saying put it in quotes and give me the pinpoint so I can find it if I have to find it. Right, right. Um so you mentioned the TCPA um I won't get into the details of that. I know that's a, you know, constantly amended statute and there's lots of changes on it, but in general how often are you seeing interlocutory appeals? I know we have the TCPA, we have, um, you know, the arbitration. Plea to the jurisdiction. Pleas to the jurisdiction. Uh, the tipper injunctions. 51014, the Civil Practices and Remedies Code, is a list of, of things that can be, uh, can ha you can have um, interlocutory appeals. Um, and I think the line between an interlocutory appeal and a mandamus has kind of blurred a little bit. Um, but, uh, we, I see them, I don't know. I don't know if I see them more than other judges, but I, but sometimes, uh, you know, if I've denied a plea to the jurisdiction, it's better than even bet that I'm gonna, that it's gonna get, that it's gonna go up on an interlocutory appeal. And that's fine. Uh, special appearance. I think you, it, I don't, I think that's an interlocutory appeal as well. And then the issue is, uh, uh, is the case is is the whole case stayed? Is only the trial stayed? And then you have to fight about can we continue? Can everybody else keep doing discovery, or are we dead in the water, kind of thing? And and there's different sections within that civil practice and remedies code section about that. What are your thoughts about um, the permissive appeal uh, statute? Now there was an amendment this year that the legislature passed, and you're probably aware of that one, which was that now the courts of appeals have to explain when they deny them, give a reasons why they deny, 
and I was I was involved in a case where we were trying to get the court to address that, and they ended up addressing it in another case. It was an eight. It was an eight. Uh, what was a three-two-three opinion? One justice had to recuse. I think that's industrial specialist, and uh, there was not a clear agreement among the justices about you know whether it was an abuse of discretion to to deny them without an explanation. And now the legislature, I believe, the the now it's reviewable, and the standard review is de novo when they deny them. Um, but I've found them useful. I've only had three granted in 20 years of practice. I mean, I think it was only on the books starting in 2011. You know, they, they mirrored it from the federal version, which has been on the books lo- there longer. Uh, but speaking of eight corners, I had an eight corners, you know, insurance coverage case where one went up, had a, a sort of a mootness jurisdictional I- issue go up. And then uh, another one was just a, a summary judgment, partial summary judgment that would have, you know, arguably disposed of the case. I mean, have you ever, is that something now, now let me say one more thing that I think despite the amendment that, that the legislature just made to the permissive appeal statute, I think the trial court, and this is why I'm asking you about it, the trial courts still have the absolute discretion, even if the elements of the statute are met, to say, nah, I don't want to certify this one. Um, and the courts of appeals still have that discretion, but when they deny, they have to explain. So what are your thoughts on that as a tool for you know helping the parties resolve, you know, a legal issue. Now, sometimes the parties agree on whether they want that to happen, and sometimes they don't. I think I hope I've been clear tonight that uh, in recording this that I want advocates to use all the tools in the toolbox at their at their disposal. I do your thing, do your job, use all the tools that you can if you think it'll move your case forward. You're never going to offend me, uh, and uh, I be and sometimes I'd like to know the answer. I would. I'm certain. I will consider it. I think the biggest variable for me in making that decision is: is this going to really help? If we get the answer to this question, is this the end of the case? Is it tantamount to the end of the case? Is this all the marbles? And will the will it be a two month trial that? We go through, and we're still going to need the answer to that question, and then go up on appeal. Or can we maybe get that answer? And if it goes the way, if it goes one way, we're not spending two months in trial. That because that two two months in trial or three weeks in trial or whatever is a big chunk of my year, and I could be do I could try ten other cases during that time if that's if we can get an answer to that question. Now, uh, I had a fascinating. Uh, 10B, 10, uh, securities fraud matter. And it was an issue of a uh, statute of repose. And, you know, statute of limitations is one thing, but a statute of repose is absolute. If you, you can't, there's no discovery rule. There's, it, once this much time has elapsed, you can't, you're out of luck. You can't bring the case anymore. And so I don't remember exactly what the issue was, but there was a, some litigation around the country about it. There was a few cases in different states, different federal districts on this securities issue and whether the statute of repose applied to this or not. I, it was several years ago. Again, I apologize for not remembering the specifics. I initially denied it because the, the, the bulk of the authority around the country was saying no. 
They wanted, but they, in my case, there was you know great lawyers on both sides, big big ivory tower firms that are fighting with each other over millions of dollars, and um, they uh, initially I initially said no permissive appeal, and like the, within a month, a judge in the Western District of Texas went the other way, and they came back to me and I said, okay, I'm still ruling my, the way that I was ruling, that it didn't, it didn't apply or whatever. The case goes forward. But because we have a new player on the board uh, from the Western District of Texas, I'm going to, uh, I'm, I'm going to say, I'm going to write, I don't think it applies, but I'm going to give you your permissive appeal. And sure enough, they went up to the Court of Appeals and, the, and within in record time, the Court of Appeals said, nope, trial court's right. <laughs> but they got their permissive appeal, and then you know that answered a very big question in the case, and it got it settled. Yeah. No, I think that they can definitely be useful. Um, and uh, you know, I what I've told trial judges who seemed more reluctant than than you sound you might be, you know, depending upon the case, is you know, let send it up. And if the court of appeals doesn't want it, they want to exercise their discretion, then they'll they'll deny it, and we'll be back. You know, it's not doesn't even. Of course, th- that's one of those appeals that doesn't stay the case. Uh, you have to ask for the stay, like a you know temporary injunction appeal. Um, you know, the only thing that stayed with those is the trial. But uh, you know, that's sort of been my approach. I mean, obviously, I think that that third element, which is material, may materially advance the ultimate termination of the litigation, is you know, it has to be something that you know, if you have ten causes of action, you're trying to get rid of one or even nine, and there's one left, and you're still going to have to spend two months in trial on that on the the remaining claim, then maybe it doesn't make a lot of sense. Sometimes the better approach there is to sever, like if it's multiple parties, just to sever, and make that a final judgment, and go. Go try, go appeal that, uh, and let us have let us stay in our sandbox and and move the bottom and, and go forward. Yeah, yeah, uh, um, yeah. I know there's a case on that somewhere. I have one, but I'm not going to talk about that one. But there's one I think uh, in the Texas Supreme Court. Maybe in, actually, I think it was set for oral argument in one of those. You know, September and October arguments are now being set, and one of them asks a question about whether it's appropriate to sever out. You know, a, I think it was a particular claim, uh, even though it's that claim is between the same parties. So all the parties in the the remain the original case and then the severed case are the same. So the question is whether it's appropriate to sever for purposes of final judgment appeal. Um, so I, I'm, I'll be looking at that case. Well, I you know what I'm I'm wrong all the time, but I was more I was more thinking of a party. If it's okay. a, if it's a one party, you know, that is that's got summary judgment and everybody else is still live. Then maybe that party can go go on up. Uh, so, you know, I know from your uh, being board certified and you know what you've already said today that that you clearly do a lot of your own research. Do you is that do you have clerks that do that or do you do all your re- research and you know I'll stop there and then I want to follow up. I have summer clerks that I give projects to. And I hold off ruling until they've done their research and given me the memo, even though most of the time I know what I want to do. Um, but I'm always, they, sometimes they surprise me, and they and uh, they make and they give me pause, and I think about it some more. Um, but I don't want to step on their toes. I want to give them a chance to do their thing. 
but I don't have a full-time clerk like in federal court. I don't have a battalion of clerks uh, doing all the research and writing. Um, if I need to research something, then it's just me, and, and I research it. But, um, but it is also true that probably 80% of what I do is routine the same thing over and over and over and over again. Yeah. So I was going to ask that question too, you know, um, you know, I think my practice tends to be pretty varied compared to some, you know, some firms and some practices are pretty, you know, consistently the same thing. And so I was curious how often you come, come up on an issue that, you know, maybe you knew about or it come up in a case before, but now, you know, maybe it's a slightly different set of facts or maybe the law, you know, when you really dig down deep into it, isn't as clear as you thought. Um, is that something that you see, I guess, on a less frequent basis, you know, if 80% of the cases you're, you know, you're handling are, are uh, you know, kind of the same thing? I find myself, I have O'Connor's, you know, four or five different O'Connor's on my desk or next to my desk. And I, with surprising frequency, someone will cite a rule or miscite a rule and I will open up the book and we'll look at the rule and we'll look at the annotations and I might do some quick and dirty research right there uh, and surpri- be surprised as to, you know, it's some, it's not the first paragraph of the rule, it's the 10th paragraph of the rule and it's archaic and it's, it's, it's something that you, that re- almost never comes up. And my dad, who's still with us, uh, is 83, who uh, was one of the, is the smartest man I ever met. Um, that one of the best pieces of advice he ever gave me was, when in doubt, read the rules. Um, now, he wasn't a lawyer. He's not a lawyer. But, you know, when in doubt, read the rules. Or read the instructions. That's what he said. When in doubt, read the instructions. And so I always say that in the courtroom. I said, well, when in doubt, read the instructions. And I'll open the book. And a lot of times, and I'm not trying to be smartass, but a lot of times I know what it says. And I know what the lawyer thinks it says. And it's not, it doesn't. And so I'll read the rule, and then we'll I'll make a ruling in saying yes, uh, yes, I, I that's what I thought it said, and so we'll and I'll be, but sometimes I'm wrong. I'm wrong uh, sometimes, and I, or I, or there's a, a nuance that I've overlooked or forgot about, um, and uh, and if I'm wrong, I'm wrong, uh, or if I if they prove if they've demonstrated that they're right, I'm that's fine. Um, there's not too many other than the you know the occasional. Um, broad or, or um, sea change uh, in the law that, like when the TCPA first came out, I, I know we didn't want to go into much detail and I won't, but when it first came out, it was, I, I remember making a ruling that uh, it was a um, uh, wrongful termination case. And the employer filed the TCPA motion saying, freedom of association. We think this should be dismissed because we exercise our right to freedom of association under the First Amendment. We didn't want to associate with this person anymore. (laughs) And I said, that's not what this is for. That's not what the TCP, the anti-slap, that's not what anti-slap is. That's not what it's for. And so I said, no. But guess what? Within two or three years of, you know, when it, when it was in its, at its height before the statute was amended, that was perfectly within the in the ballpark of of uh, being a TCPA motion, 
And uh, and so there's an opinion out there where I say where the court of appeals agrees with me. Yeah, that's not what the anti-slap motion is. I don't think that's good law anymore. Yeah. No. I think I think uh, you know uh, uh, Kent Rudder and Lynn Liberato did have done. I was actually a, a, an articles editor in law school for their first version of Reasons for Reversals in the courts of appeals. And I know they've done. They keep doing that every few years, and it's a great you know, tool to look at and see, you know, and I think they had done sort of a mid-year analysis of TCPA cases, and this might have been, been at one of the HBA appellate section CLEs that I try to go to every month, and I think they showed that that in 2019, um, you know, they, they passed the, the, that was one of the big amendments in 2019, and, but of course it was going to take, you know, a year or two before the amendment versions of TCPAs went up on appeal, that that the reversal rate of denied, you know, motions to dismiss went from about 60% reversal to about 25%, even though the law hadn't actually changed yet, or at least hadn't made its way up to any cases on appeal. So I thought that was kind of an interesting, uh, you know, uh, uh, it was clear that, you know, the amendment, the legislative amendment was foreshadowing what, you know, ev- what the legislature thought should happen with anti-slap appeals. Everything was anti-slap for a while. And then, in fact, the, the, my, the funniest example to me was people filing anti-slap motions in response to someone filing an anti-slap motion. Right, right. Yeah, they fixed that, they fixed that one. And I think now <laughs> all motions are, are generally not uh, subject to, to being slapped. Um, uh, so we're are getting pretty close to about when we need to, to uh, stop, unless you want to stay here all night with me. But uh, So I wanted to ask if there's maybe one thing, a tip for attorneys that you've seen you know, an attorney do, whether it be a trial or, or a you know, motion, a hearing on a motion, and maybe one thing that maybe attorneys should not do. Well, uh, one you- thing that attorneys should do is um, not send... Uh, local counsel to cover something if that attorney doesn't have any clue what the case is about. Uh, there's nothing. If, if we're in a, if it's a substantive issue, or uh, then uh, the attorney that shows up needs to be responsible for that case and know what it's about. Uh, I, it's a waste of time to just send someone down there to cover it if it's and just say, you know what, judge, I don't know. I'm just here, local counsel covering it. Um, that is endlessly frustrating. Um, but and and but more substantively, I would say, um, it the, the best lawyers are the ones who are the most prepared. Um, and I know that some lawyers have many lawyers have volume practices. There's a limited amount of time and energy. Your clients are not endlessly are not ATMs and uh, can't pay you for all the time in the world. And there's only so much you can do. Um, but you can be. You need to be the most prepared lawyer in the room, because if you're the one that I could turn to as the resource who knows the facts and who knows the governing law, I'm much more likely to go with you because you're going to sound a lot more persuasive and you're going to make my job easier. So be the most prepared lawyer in the room. Uh, and then the flip side, I don't, we've already talked about Vordire, um, is uh, in your... Um, when you are asking, you need to read the order that the court prepared, uh, court that the court signed. You, first of all, you need to submit a proposed order. 
Um, that's frustrating when I, there's a 50-part discovery motion and you give me an order that says it's granted. Uh, or um, what am I going to do with that? I need, I need each individual piece to, to rule on so that I can easily check it off and say granted, denied, granted, denied, or sustained, overruled. Um, but if I've signed an order that says I do not expect to grant any more continuance in this, in t- any more continuances in this case, and then the next setting rolls around and you file the exact same continuance motion without even referencing that there's some exigency, that there's some, you know, somebody's hair is on fire or somebody's on maternity leave or something, or there's a vacation letter and you just file the same motion, it says to me, you didn't read the order that I signed. Uh, and the point of that order is you need to be ready for trial uh, because I'm not likely to grant a continuance. And then I have to decide, do I, do I have to be the jerk and deny your continuance, which I really hate to do because I, when I was a lawyer and I wanted a continuance or I needed a continuance, I needed a continuance. Um, so I, hate, I don't like to do that. But that's why I put it in the previous order to warn you I'm not likely to grant any more. So you got to read the, what I've interlineated in your order. Uh, appellate lawyers are definitely, uh, particularly at the Texas Supreme Court, and I think the Houston Courts of Appeals are, are do, it, do it just as well, they'll tell you when you've gotten your last extension on a motion, on a brief, you know, uh, granted, no further extensions will be considered, period. And then, you know, okay, I really have, unless you're, you know, you're, you get in a car wreck or something like that. And I, uh, Blake Hawthorne at the Texas Supreme Court basically says that. I mean, we, we, we tell you, you know, you're, you're almost at the end and now you're at the end. And then, you know, we're not crazy if, if you know, you get in a car accident or there's some serious issue that are obviously going to grant it. Uh, but it sounds like you do something similar on trial continuances. I don't make it. I get in trouble with the Court of Appeals if I make it absolute. If I say I'm never going to grant a continuance period at the end, someone will mandamus me and, and say, that's an advisory opinion. You can't do that. So I make it, I come as close to that as I can without going over that line saying I, meaning any more continuances, any further motions for continuance are very likely to be denied. And uh, um and part of that is because we, you know, between uh, the uh, Hurricane Harvey, when we were sharing courthouse, this courthouse with the criminal courts, and the pandemic, when we were way behind in, in getting cases tried for six months, um, there is a perception, at least, of a backlog. And so I'm trying to get, I'm trying to, I'm always trying to make my docket younger, which means that whatever cases on the docket, unless there's a pref setting, preferential setting, I'm going to try the oldest case first. I always want my docket to be evergreen. I want it to be young, as young as possible. I want to try the oldest case first, and people know that, I think. And if, if you're in the 2018s, 2019s, you're not very likely to get a continuance without an emergency. If you're in the 2021, maybe. 22, sure. Uh, you know, you'll, uh, I'm, I'm not, like I said, I'm not a, uh, that much of a hard bleep. all right well last last question um you know i think this maybe this gives a little bit of insight as to your personality or or something that maybe one of you know some lawyer listening here in in the future could could glean about you know how to approach a case in your court what what is your favorite 
you know, sort of courtroom lawyer movie or, or maybe a TV show? Uh, there's two, and I just talked about them yesterday. Um, my Cousin Vinny, uh, in terms of the actual trial, uh, maybe three. Uh, my Cousin Vinny, just anytime it's on, I'll watch it wherever it starts. I'll watch the whole thing. Uh, one of my favorite experiences with my younger son, Zachary, was intro- when he was 12 or 13, I played uh, uh, 12 Angry Men, the original black and white TV movie Henry, for him. Henry Fonda. Henry Fonda, yeah. Jack Klugman. Uh, all just a, a murderer's row of actors, uh, famous actors and and character actors, and every time Henry Fonda came around to another, what about this? I remember Zachary's eyes would get big and his mouth would open, and it was just fat. It was just enthralled, enthralled because that that performance by Henry Fonda and just the bringing the other eleven around. The way he did, and getting that kid acquitted, is it was one of the reasons I became a lawyer in the first place. Because it's just fascinating and, and just uh, so heartening that it's so you know like Mr. Smith goes to Washington or To Kill a Mockingbird. Of course, To Kill a Mockingbird has a terrible ending, not a good ending. But the other one that that I talk about that's really fun from the standpoint of a uh, of of you know these when I worked for thinking about back to when I was working for John O'Quinn and when I started is the John Travolta movie called A Civil Action. Only that that's the one where uh, Woburn, right? With the the uh the leather It was uh, it was Beatrice was ultimately right. the, the Woburn company. was the location, right? Yeah. And I think and then uh they were pouring, you know, this tanning right. solution. And people and, were dying. Yeah. But the thing that always stands out to me in that movie is the very beginning when he's, when it's a very dark and dramatic courtroom, you know, on a stage somewhere, and the jury's in the box, and the judge is on the stand, and the defense lawyers are at their table, and John Travolta, wheel, unrelated to the later, you know, poisoning matter, uh, wheels in his quadriplegic client up to the chair, up to the, the counsel table to sit next to him, pulls out a handkerchief, and gently dabs the corners of the mouth of the drooling quadriplegic gentleman and the defense lawyer is furiously scribbling numbers on a pad and showing them to to John Travolta as settlement offers and Travolta goes for you know I know this is a podcast so I can't just shake my head he shakes his head no (laughs) and then he writes more numbers no and and then they the insurance lawyer is is getting more and more desperate (laughs) finally writes another number and with maybe more another zero and Travolta goes, okay, <laughs> and, that, and that, just that. I know that's that's some. Of, that's also the thing that that people hate about lawyers too, and the, and all these billboards and the TV advertising. I get it, but just watching that and that fantasy of having that client and that that ringing the bell kind of case as a plaintiff's lawyer is um, it was. Something I, that that stands out as as one of a lawyer movie for me. Yeah, I, I the one thing I remember. Well, I, I, I that's a totally a great movie. I love that movie. The one thing that I always, you know, as a as an actual lawyer watching a lawyer movie that I always thought about was when, you know, the federal judge John Lithgow, uh, says, "Oh, and you pulled out this." obscure rule 11 that I've never read before. And of course, all lawyers who've ever practiced in federal court know that 
you know, we all know that the Rule 11 there is quite different from the state court one. That's the sanction rule. Um, but uh, oh, do you remember, or um, and uh, what's the one? Oh, I'm not going to remember. With the the rule against perpetuities played the pivotal role. Uh, it was um, it was a really sexy movie from the early '80s with John Hurt and um, uh, the woman with the really deep voice uh, uh, who was in Romancing the Stone. Um, I know who you're talking about. I know who you're talking the, about. That, I, I don't know if I've ever seen that but one, or that, if, if I have, it's been so long. But it came down to the rule against perpetuities. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> Which was, I still don't understand. Exactly, nobody understands. Yeah, certainly didn't understand it in law school. So, but, Well, anyway, I, I appreciate your time. You came in late, and uh, I, I I'm, will forever be appreciative of you uh, agreeing to do this and also reaching out to me on Twitter to volunteer to be the first uh, guinea pig. Uh, but I really appreciate your time and thank you very much. And I hope that uh, maybe if, if, if I continue to do this and have more guests that, you know, maybe we can have a, uh, a second version of, of this. Uh, uh, anytime. I'd love to do it. I, 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 again, congratulate you on this project. Just so the record's clear, you said I came in late. I, I was on time, right. but I came in after work is what you're saying. That's right. You okay. were you were actually early, and we started late because we both have day jobs. Okay. So. I just wanted the record to reflect that uh, Judge Engelhardt was on time. Absolutely. Absolutely. Well, thank you very much. My pleasure. Thank you. All right. Thanks for listening to Houston Law Nerd Podcast with Dylan Russell. Check out the website, HoustonLawNerd.com, or wherever you listen to podcasts for episodes. Emails to HoustonLawNerd at gmail.com for questions or comments, or if you'd like to suggest a guest or be one. And special thanks to Elias Haslinger and Church on Monday for permission to use the music. Thank you.